Hello, and welcome to Golden Grenades, a podcast about birds with stories from those who worship them, all set against the heartwarming and cheery backdrop of the end of the world. My name is Kit, aka Yolo Birder, and each week a special guest joins me to talk about the five species of bird that they would save above all others when the inevitable environmental collapse arrives. This week, my special guest is Dominic Cousins. Dominic has had a long career combining writing well over 30 books and countless articles on nature with tour guiding, the latter mainly in southern England. He has written regular columns in birdwatching magazine Nature's Home for the RSPB and Waterlife and has appeared in many other places including the nation's broadsheets. His books include Secret Lives of Garden Birds, Britain's Mammals, A Patch Made in Heaven, A Bird a Day and The World's Top 100 Birding Sites. His first conservation book, Save Our Species, has just been published and he has recently completed writing his first book on insects. He loves showing people new things, be it birds and other wildlife on a tour or describing things in a book. He is particularly fond of telling people about unusual bird behaviour or facts and has been on the telly with Harry Hill. Dominic, hello. Hello, Kit. Nice to be on your show. Thanks so much for coming on. How are you today? I'm very good, actually. I've been doing a lot of birding and a lot of time outside, and not surprisingly, that's been a, a great help after these long, dark months we've all been suffering from. So, yeah, pretty good. Thank you. And you? Yeah, not bad at all. Just waiting for my Swifts. I put Swift boxes up last year, so I'm going to start playing the calls and hoping that they'll arrive in the next sort of two or three weeks up here. I had my first Swift yesterday. So oh, it's the wow. 29th of April, so I had it yesterday, the 28th, so that was pretty amazing. Summer is here. Well, my Swifts tend to be a little bit tardy, if I'm honest, but they'll, they'll be here at some point soon, hopefully. One thing I was going to ask you about is you're particularly interested in unusual bird behaviour, and we'll discuss some of the behaviours of the five bird species that you've chosen today. But apart from those five, are there any other favourite unusual bird behaviours that you might have? Yes, actually, I, I was doing an article a couple of years ago, and a particular behaviour that I'd never really thought of suddenly came into my sort of research, and that was doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> and somebody had done a short paper on herons, and they discovered something like 80% of the day, they do nothing whatsoever. They just stand in a field with that wonderfully bad-tempered look, and they just don't do anything. They don't go to sleep. You know, they don't talk about politics <laughs> or anything like that, which, you know, whiles away the time. They just sit there in a field and uh, pass the time. And actually, a lot of time, a lot of birds don't do anything. So I was able to preface the article by saying this article is about nothing whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> and probably a few people thought, well, nothing has changed there then. Yeah. <laughs> You, you tend not to think of birds as doing nothing. You always assume that there's a purpose to it, whether they're sleeping or resting or conserving energy or whatever. But yeah, that's really interesting. That Do you think they're thinking about something? They think about sort of what fish they caught in the morning. Dreams of fish. And they don't live very long either. So three or four years is okay for a heron. So they spend a lot of time doing nothing and then dying. <laughs> they need to think more about that and not spend 80% of their time doing nothing if they're only going to live for a few years. Yeah, they could set up a stall selling something or you know, fish, <laughs> that sort of thing. You know, so as, as cormorants pass by, you know, they could say, do you want a fish? Yeah. The cormorants pretty much the same. At least they open their wings and dry them. The cormorants yeah. spend most of their day doing nothing as well. 
the trouble with eating fish. So if you're a person and you eat too many fish, you have to be quite careful that you don't suddenly sort of start doing nothing whatsoever. <laughs> did you see that crazy thing that did the rounds on Twitter a couple of weeks ago of the, the heron that had gone into the fishmongers and it was just stood yes. there staring yes. at the counter, you know? Yes, it probably had this idea while it was doing nothing. I'm sure I've seen lots of people with lots of fish recently. I think I'll go and have a look. So maybe they're evolving. That's it. Maybe they're just <laughs> concocting plans. We think they're doing nothing. Yeah, that's what they're doing. Yeah. Maybe when all humankind has finally destroyed itself, that will be their moment that they've been planning. Yeah. Do you definitely. think you've hit nail on the head, Kit? That is what they're doing. <laughs> We've rumbled them this time. In terms of bird behaviours, and, and, you know, there are some spectacular things, and a lot, a lot of them are adaptations to finding food or living a different way. But I, I particularly love gulls when they stamp for worms. They look like they're embarking on some curious dance. And what I love is the serious expression they always have. Yeah. They're like um, river dance, aren't they? Yeah. They're river dance people. They, they sort of move their feet all the time, but they look straight ahead. Fairly seriously. I'm never going to think of seagulls in the same way now. And somebody needs to, if you're listening to this, somebody needs to put the Riverdance theme tune over a worm stamping gull. It'll be done on Twitter by the end of the day. Let's hope so. <laughs> Talking of gulls, I heard somewhere that your first foray into writing about birds, the very first time you did any bird writing, was on the difficulty of gull identification. Is, is that correct? Yes, it is. Back in the mists of time, um, quite some time back. Yeah, I was uh, a bird watching magazine was quite young then. It was only a few years that it had been running. And obviously, like any writer, I was really keen to get into bird watching magazine. And then just one morning, I just came down and thought, oh, I think I'm going to try doing an article on the mysteries of gun identification, all the phrases that people use like first winter, second winter and and also now we all use first calendar year and things like that. And it's great. You can talk, talk about gulls and use lots of phrases. So I did a play on those different phrases and I pretended that there was a, there was a plumage called a last winter. It was a first, second, third. That's the, that's the winter that the bird has before it dies. Anyway, so I just did a play on that. And it's one of those situations very, very occasionally happen in life. I sat down, wrote the whole article in one. Uh, it was about a thousand words sent it off, they accepted it, and I've not been in ever since, but about two years after that, I got a column, and I've, I've never been out of the magazine, which has been wonderful. It haven't replaced me yet. Maybe they don't notice I'm in. That's <laughs> possible. It's quite a lot of pages. They thought, oh, what's he doing there? I'm still there. 20, I think it's 25 years later. Brilliant. That's a great story. And obviously, it's led to dozens of books as well, that, that very first article. I had my own foray into self-publishing, I think it is, a few years ago when, as part of just some silly fundraising thing at Bird Fair, I did a very similar thing, which didn't lead to an illustrious career in writing at all, but it was called The Seagull ID and Activity Pamphlet. And I'm holding this oh, okay. up for Dominic's benefit here. You are. And my stock and trade in Twitter has been dissing seagulls, you know, largely and calling them seagulls because I, I enjoy that because that winds up birders. There's no such thing as a seagull. It's gulls. I quite I quite liked you in this conversation up to now, but now I'm, I'm quite I not actually. <laughs> well, I did this helpful flow chart for people, which was seagull identification made easy. And it right. says, does it look like a seagull? Yes. 
it is a seagull. No, right. it is not a seagull. So it, it was full of handy tips, word searches, and, and all sorts wow. of... You know, I never thought of that. Well, good, that makes it much simpler, Dominic. Yeah, if it isn't a seagull, that suggests, actually, that it's something else, doesn't it? It does, and it, it, it saves a lot of time. It really does. Okay, I just wanted to make a point, actually, to encourage people who might actually want to take up writing. I want to tell them that actually it can sometimes just take a moment. One moment of inspiration for me really did launch everything, in yeah. a sense. And that could happen to anyone listening. So I'd encourage them to keep going. And also, to, if they haven't been successful the first time, just do keep going and find your voice, because sooner or later you will. And there's lots of great writers coming up. And made yes, there's lots of competition, but don't let that stop you. Sorry, I've gone all serious on you, Kit. No, that's all right. I sometimes need a yin to my yang when um, I'm going off on one. So yeah, that no, that's good. And you're right. There is an awful lot of good young writers and enthusiastic, you know, naturalists out there. And like you say, lots of competition, but it's a it's a booming area. And yeah, golden generation, I think. Yeah, absolutely. One last question before we move on to your birds. I must ask you about your Harry Hill telly appearance. How did that come about? It was amazing. I actually did um, a section for Autumn Watch with Martin Hughes Games. And Harry Hill's TV Burp was the programme. Yep. And what he used to do, he used to basically make fun of things on the TV that he'd seen during the week. And he was a, good, a big fan of Autumn Watch. He's a very keen naturalist and a very nice man, I should point out. Anyway, I did this section with Martin for Autumn Watch, and they had picked up, the people at Endemol who did the series, picked up that there was a few occasions where Martin had said something, and then rather than answering a question properly, I'd just said the same thing again. Right. And being rather mean, they, 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 they picked this up, and they basically wanted to make me look stupid. So <laughs> I got this phone call on a Friday night, I was about to do a weekend in Portland with a birding group. I got this call saying, this is from Harry Hill's show. I assumed it was a wind-up. So I was about to say something very rude and then realised that it wasn't a wind-up. And they wanted me to come on the show to be in front of a live audience. And I thought, I'm going to make myself look an idiot, but it's too much fun not to. And my children are young and all their parents at school would have would watch the programme. And I thought, there's something I've got to do. The idea, what they were going to do, was they were going to get me to read an auto cue, which was the same as Harry's. So he was going to go on to the next section, he said, and now we're going to do this. And then I would pop up and say the same thing, and now we're going to do this. Um, and that was, the, that was the joke, because I was repeating <laughs> everything he said. Anyway, so they sent a limousine for the whole family. So we all went up there. They paid me 800 quid. We just met Harry Hill, and of course I was terrified because this was in front of a live audience. And so I went on. And I had to, I had to pop up in that famous desk that Harry Hill used to do. So I was hidden, and I was leaning against Harry's knee. And so he started doing the cue, and then I popped up and repeated everything. And then in the end, he would say, "Oh, shut up!" and hit me with a plastic truncheon. <laughs> So that's what we did. I repeated it and they hit me with a plastic wrench and I went down. And that five seconds was my claim to fame. <laughs> and really... then we took a limousine home, had a wonderful time. And that was it. That was pretty much my TV career beginning and ending. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. It's about uh, 7 million people watched it, actually. Uh, so I'm going to quite... see if I can find that on YouTube or something. That sounds great. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, this leads me on to my last question that I've got for you. 
and I've got a new little segment on the show called Zero Punches Pulled. Where I ask you a probing question that you are unlikely to be asked anywhere else. And Harry Hill does the junior Great British Bake Off on telly. Yeah. And it made me wonder, if you were on Bake Off and you had to make a bird-related showstopper cake, hmm. which bird and which cake would it be? Oh, for goodness sake. Do you know, my, my years of experience of bird behaviour really set me up for this point, haven't they? Um, how about, um, I think um, it's only got a few records in Britain, but how about an Egyptian vulture cake? Oh, yeah. Because Egyptian vultures are, are very unusual because they eat human excrement. Oh. So we can have... We can have the horror vulture cake. How about that? So obviously we wouldn't have real e human excrement. We'd make little cakes which were shaped like human poos. And then we could make the horror Egyptian vulture cake. You know, I was thinking Arctic turn, Arctic roll or a Battenberg waxwing. But, you know, you mm. absolutely trumped me there with your Egyptian vulture human poo cake. Yeah. That is brilliant. No, yours are really uplifting and tasty sounding and... <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Enough of my tomfoolery. Let's move on and we'll talk about the five species of bird that mean the most to you, the ones that you would run into the metaphorical burning building to save when the impending environmental apocalypse finally arrives. So, Dominic, tell us about your first choice. Bird number one. One, one, one. one of the birds that brings back those sort of halcyon days of childhood for me is... Nuthatch, naturally, for two reasons. Firstly, I grew up near Richmond Park in South London, and there was a place there where everybody fed the birds. But this is this is a quite a high council tax ban, so you didn't just get blue tits and great tits and robins coming to your hand. You also got coal tits, which actually are not that keen to come on people's hands normally. And nuthatches, of all things. So I very early memory when I was. Oh, yeah, even preschool, probably. I had a nuthatch come onto my hand. And I, I just remember being blown away by this thing. And what an incredible experience it was to have. And then a few years later, another halcyon day in the summer, we went to a, a stately home for a visit in Surrey, um, just a family day out. And we parked in the car park. I felt something on my trousers and I looked down and there was a nuthatch chick just down to the nest, thinking I was a branch, thinking I was a tree trunk. And it was amazing. climbing up my trouser leg. And then another one was on my foot. And when you're a youngster, those sorts of things just stay with you forever. And I was already keen on birds by then, but it was like the birds were coming to me and saying, love us, you know, yeah. help protect us and do what you can. So I've loved them ever since. I mean, they're great birds anyway. Yeah, they're full of character. One of the things that nuthatches do, they're, they're the only British birds and almost the only birds in the world that climb down trees headfirst. Yeah, they do spend um, a disproportionate amount of time on their heads, don't they, like pointing? They do. Yeah. yeah, they're unique in that. The squirrels do as well. So you could say nuthatch is just a squirrel with feathers. but <laughs> And it does the same stuff. You know, it stores away acorns and things. Maybe actually nuthatches and squirrels are the same. That, <laughs> do you, I'm not sure we've checked carefully enough. I'm going to look really carefully at the next squirrel I see to see whether it's actually... <laughs> a nuthatch in disguise. Yeah, they could be the same thing. They're, they're scatter hoarders, aren't they, nuthatches? They are. You just wanted to say that term, didn't you? Yeah, I like it. Scatter hoarding. It's a great, great phrase. 
they hide stuff away in their territory. So they have to be territorial because you'd be a bit of a disaster if you hid lots of stuff away and then someone stole your territory. So, yeah, they have a long-term territory and they uh, store away nuts. And I think like um, tits, they sometimes store insects away as well. Tits definitely store live food, actually, in yeah. little blobs of saliva. Yeah. I mean, it must be, a you know, the memory they must have. And I know they are, I know, like you've said, they are very territorial and you will get a pair that will stay yeah. that territory all their lives. I read this in your Secret Lives of Garden Birds. Ah, yeah, I've got a reader. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. What they do is they put them in likely places. So they're likely to come across them. I, uh, there was one study, I think it was something like 70% of them were remembered. They did a laboratory study. I think it was on pinyon jays, actually. And about 70% of the hiding places were remembered. Wow. Which is pretty good when it's about 5,000 acorns in the case. I'm not sure how many pinyon jays do. They're a bird of the USA. But common jays, Eurasian jays, probably quite similar. Well, the, the more we, we delve into what even insects can do. Yeah the more incredible it is. I mean, I, I read somewhere that moths can navigate using the stars, which is pretty amazing. Think about it. It is. The rotation of the stars anyway, like migrant birds do. Migration is is incredible. And when you get to yeah. migration of moths and butterflies, I mean, it, it yes, it's just mind-blowing, really. The other thing I like about nuthatches is that sort of great skill they've got of finding a hole to nest in, but then using mud to make the hole the right size perfectly the right size for them That's to get right. out but to prevent other things like starlings getting in yeah so they do it to, to a precise nuthatch squeeze so they use wet mud and then they get the hole size just right for them um but it's obviously too small because starlings are, are bigger than nuthatches and starlings are too fat to go in their favorite tv program would be holes that i've hammered wouldn't it <laughs> <laughs> very good Right. Well, that was the nuthatch. Only arrived in Scotland in 1989, though, first bred in Scotland. So, it, you know, they, they've taken a while to get that far north. Yeah. Moving swiftly on, let's talk about your second choice, bird number two. Bird number two. Well, I think I might go for starling because I've a little bit of history with it, but it's just the most, I mean, starling's ridiculous things. They're the most... Is there a better bird in Britain than a starling? I know you're going to say peregrines are better, but I mean, starling's got a bit of everything. And when I was, as I think I told you, I was born in um, Southwest London. And back in those days, I'm aging myself here a bit, but there used to be uh, huge movements of starlings into central London. You know, thousands and thousands of starlings going into central London. You didn't have to go to Somerset. You could see it every day. You could see the commuting starlings. It was great because the, the human commuters would come out of London at the same time the starling commuters would be going into London. And now we have one of the great wildlife spectacles in the world, probably. The starling roosts in Somerset and Brighton and lots of good ones up in the north of England as well. And these are some of the greatest sights anyone can see of any wildlife. And yet there they are on our doorstep at the right time of year and around Christmas. And what a privilege that is. You know, something that's really, really intriguing, though, Kit. For us, one of the great things about British wildlife is a starling roost. So why is there no folklore about it? Someone may be able to answer this question, but you never hear any phrases. You know, you get lots of phrases like, like the crow flies, which actually refers to rooks. 
but there are lots of phrases within English which refer to various types of wildlife, but nothing referring to starling roosts. So a nice mystery, really. Yeah, it's curious. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of old writing and, and I'm doing a bit more research for these podcasts and, and reading up about folklore and and yeah. what have you. And, and a lot of things when birds were written, obviously they would write about their song or their yeah. light or, you know, what it what it evoked in, in that sense. But maybe, you know, drilling down into specific behaviours, you know, was less commonly written about. But when you... Yeah, when you make it the probably the most impressive spectacle of all birds in Britain, you would have thought that somebody somewhere would have would have written about it. Yeah, it's curious. It is a strange one, isn't it? Starlings are also. I mean, they have these amazing songs. About thirty percent of the song is pure imitation, and you know when starlings sing, they often flap their wings. I think that means they're unpaired and they stop flapping when they're paired up. I oh. think that's true. Maybe the other way around. And they're also the least woke birds in Britain because the males have blue at the base of the bill and the females have pink. Uh. <laughs> Doesn't always go down well, but yeah, they, they have blue and pink separation of, of, this, of the sexes. They also are famous for using aromatic herbs to line the nest to make the nest presumably smell nice. Right. So, that, you know, it's one of those birds, you think of starlings and... Every time you look at any aspect of their behaviour, they're more extraordinary. Yeah. If I ever have anything I'd like people to remember me by, it's it's to actually to remember that every bird is special and every bird has an incredible story to tell. I've been very fortunate to be able to tell many stories about different birds, but every single one of them has the capacity to amaze us. Yeah. Obviously, apart from peregrine, which is wildly overrated. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to point that out. Obviously, one of the, the sort of jokes of this podcast is that all birds are brilliant, but that some birds are simply better than others. And, you know, I think that the nice thing about talking to people and everybody making their different choices is that it gives an opportunity to discuss why that bird is is great in its own right. Um, and not every bird is the fastest bird in the world and not every bird you know, migrate 12,000 miles twice a year. But, you know, every bird does something amazing. And, and it happens to be that the, the starling does several things. But it does. You know, murmuration is incredible and, and mimicry in itself. I mean, I've I've been looking for a jay because I've heard a jay calling and I've found a starling, you know. And yes, and jays, jays imitate as well. Of yeah, you know, so yeah, it's 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 just so bizarre. But the, to think that they can do owls and cats and goats and frogs and mm. car alarms and phones, you know, absolutely crazy. I didn't know that about lining the nest with aromatic herbs though because they used to get called yeah. stinkers didn't they in, in the victorian times one of the one of the nicknames was weezer and stinker and really snipe well, you have been doing research kid haven't have, you? yeah i can feel a book coming on yeah <laughs> you. you have to go on from the gull one you have to write write one on i don't know folklore or bird <laughs> names or something i think uh, mark cocker did that before me much he did do it very well you know what you could do which mark cocker would never do is you could actually make it all up so you could you could actually pretend that these birds had this name and no one's going to know yeah. any different. You could just say, oh, yeah, the, the starling used to be called the TV watcher. 
because it used to go on aerials <laughs> and things like that. You could completely get away with it. I think Bill Mark, could, Mark is an, in, you know, he's got far too much integrity to do that. But not so sure about you, Kit. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably right, but um, I'll leave that to Bill Bailey or somebody, somebody uh, far funnier than I am. That was the starling. So let's move on. We'll talk about your third bird now. Bird number three. 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 <laughs> Yes, I've chosen long-tailed tit. It's one one of those birds that is very common, of course, but I personally, I just never, ever tire of seeing. Maybe sometimes there are the odd bird you think, oh, oh no, not that again, like, I don't know, chiff-chaff or something. And, um, not another chiff-chaff. But long-tailed tit anyway, it's just weird. Red eye and uh, the pink plumage, and it's always doing something interesting and is always uh, in company. But anyway, I've had some good experiences with long-tailed tits. And one of them was I was leading a, a group in, of birders in the New Forest once, and we stumbled across something I'd never, ever seen in my whole life. And that is a tree nest of a long-tailed tit. Because everyone knows they build these nests low down, in, usually in thorny bushes. And you can often see them very easily. You can see the nest, you can find the nest. But a lot, some long-tailed tits nest high in trees among branches it's one of those things again you see you can you can watch animals and birds plants for the for a long long time and suddenly come across something you've just never seen before you have no idea that it's going to happen and this is nature it's just never ending there's always something you're going to come across yeah but that was an occasion where it's a common bird you definitely weren't expecting anything unusual and then all of a sudden we were able to watch this and then long-tailed tits, as everyone knows, do lots of interesting things. But there's always a lot of bird behaviour. You need to ask the next next question. So in the case of long-tailed tits, everyone knows that they have this wonderful nest, which has four main ingredients. So there's the cobwebs, the moss, the lichens, and the feathers. And they're generally regarded as about 1,000 to 2,000 feathers. It varies. But then the question is, where do you get feathers from if you're a long-tailed tit? Yeah. And actually, that's really interesting because most of the feathers are from corpses. If you think about it, where else could they? Can't pluck their own feathers. Yeah. Because they wouldn't have enough left. How many feathers would a long-tailed tit have? I would imagine it's about eight to ten thousand. But if it if it took feathers out, it could die of cold. So it has to get feathers somewhere else. And it's not like long-tailed tits are going to ambush birds and pluck their feathers. Sometimes they might be able to get them from a roost site of a duck or something like that, but most of them won't. So they have to wait for a kill from a sparrowhawk or other bird of prey and pluck the corpse. That's incredible. It's, it's cool, isn't it? It's, it it's is a cool. thought. To find them by chance would just be too energy inefficient, wouldn't it? Wasteful. You know, they'd be flying around ages to find the numbers that they need. So, Well, do you think they, what do they do? Do they watch sparrowhawks or do they how do they do it yeah i don't know but yeah they, they they couldn't possibly just go around picking up single molted feathers everywhere and pick up two thousand of those so yeah i've got nesting long-tailed tits for the very first time this year it's in a sort of thorny bush immediately in front of our our lounge window and it's only a couple of feet away so we've been able to watch them build their nest from the this the sort of bottom up i bought an endoscopic camera so that i could have a little look at oh, right. uh, when, they, <laughs> when they weren't there but actually it's such a thorny bush and it's grown a bit more since they right. started i can't actually get the endoscope i can't even see the hole it's incredible well you know that's why long-tailed tits build their nest in in thorny bushes it's to stop people with endoscopes 
<laughs> evolutionary adaptation stop it's they're, they're, they're clever little devs. That. yeah they thought of it all in advance i loved watching them when they were building it though and you know when it was just a little cup at the bottom and the way they sort yeah. of shuffle their bum to, bums around yeah, yeah, to sort of yeah. smooth it inside it was so cute well they want a good interior yeah Very important isn't it yeah. putting widescreen tvs in their nests these days <laughs> <laughs> they're great little birds and, and i love that old name for them the bum barrel i don't know why they're oh, called that but uh it's it's a good one the other the other fact i love about them and, it, and i guess it applies to lots of these small birds that are susceptible in winters that they often get together in big groups and cuddle up for warmth in the in the cold nights and in roosts you know big communal roosts they're family roosts actually oh, okay um, so just pure but- families yeah, so it's mum and dad with their young of the year and usually some relatives of the parents as well. Okay. Possibly past young of the parents as well. But, you know, it's one of those things, you see a picture of a long-tailed tit and you think it's all sweet. Oh, they're so lovely and they're lovely as birds. I love them to bits. And then you find that the parents are the ones on the inside oh. and the chicks are the ones on the outside. Really? Yeah, so the parents are the ones who are getting the maximum heat, whereas the chicks are providing it for them. And if it's cold, it's the chicks that die, not the adults. That's interesting. So I've spoilt, spoilt your day, sorry. But that- that's the way it is. It's, uh, that's biology. Because a breeding pair is a more important component of the population than a, than a first-year bird. Yeah, of course. Oh, blimey. Right, not so cute after all. So let's move on to your next choice. So tell us about bird number four. Bird number four. Now, this is an absolute cracker. This is wood warbler. Not only is it very pretty, everyone loves wood warblers. It's beautiful kind of moss. It's like a willow warbler that's gone to have a makeover, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's really suddenly it's all bright and colourful. It's got yellow and white and it's, yeah, it's really... It's what, when a willow warbler goes to bed, it dreams of having a makeover and becoming a wood warbler. And it's very interesting in so many ways, this bird, rather scarce actually. Um, But there are some incredible behaviors associated with this bird. For a start, why does it have two songs? It's got two songs. It's got the shivering trill, which sounds like a spinning coin coming to rest. And it's also got the pew, pew, pew song. These are two different songs. It doesn't always sing all of them. It's thought that I think the shivering trill is associated with birds that don't have a pair, uh, don't have a partner yet. So they're advertising. The pew 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 birds are the ones that have one. But um, there are two extraordinary aspects of wood warbler behavior that blow my mind. They literally, I can't, it's just incredible what they do. The first is something that actually also happens in pied flycatchers. It's called polyterritorial polygyny. And uh, it's not unusual for a male bird to be polygynous, which means it has two official mates. So it's it's sort of bred with them and have interacted with them. We're not talking about casual uh, interactions. We're talking about a formal interaction. And so a wren, for example, often have two or even three female mates. And the... Um, the wood warbler is one of those. But what's extraordinary about it, and also the pied fly, is that it may have two partners. It's also got two territories. So you can have a bird with the territory with a female, and the other territory can be as far as a kilometer away. And what they do 
is the male wood warblers sing. The female is attracted. They pair up with the, with the female. The female lays a clutch and it takes two weeks to incubate an average songbird's clutch. So what's the male going to do for two weeks? Well, in the case of the wood warbler, he goes and starts another territory. Quite some distance away, perhaps out of earshot, they don't know. Sings again, female comes along, pairs up with her, and then the eggs are laid. And the moment the eggs are laid, he goes back to his primary female and deserts the other one. And it's a very uh, exotic version of polygyny. Nobody really knows if the, if the females are aware. They think they probably are. The first female's probably aware, and the second female's probably aware too. But presumably it, it pays for them both to pair up with a, this male. Yeah. But that's not even my favourite story about wood warblers. So what they discovered, this was a study, I think it was in Poland, where wood warblers turned up one year and they didn't turn up the next. Or there were a hundred pairs one year and sort of three the next year. And they'd started investigating why are wood warblers common one year and absent the next year? And they discovered that an absence of wood warblers coincided with high populations of voles really? in the wood. Yes, I think they were, must have been bank voles, I guess. So high populations of bank voles, which of course are ground living, they don't fly, do they? Yeah. Um, and they can predate wood warbler nests. And so when there was a high vole year, the wood warblers moved on. So they arrive on territory, they sing, they discover it's a high vole year, and as a result of that, they move on. But how do they know yeah. it's a good vole year? I've never seen a wood warbler setting a mammal trap, have you? No. <laughs> so how on earth do the wood warblers know? That's crazy. That there's more predators, potential predators around. Yeah. It's a mystery for now. Um, but it's, again, it's one of those things you, you read it up. I don't know this research myself. I just read other people's papers and... But it can literally think, how do they know? This is incredible. How, what does it do? I mean, it's busy. It's yeah. singing. It's feeding. And then it can tell how many voles there are. Fortunately, at least voles are diurnal, so it might be able to watch them. But yeah. voles, for, your, for the record, are diurnal and nocturnal. Um, they're active 24 hours. But anyway, so that's a good one for, for wood warbler. Yeah, that's, that, that's incredible science, isn't it? And I, I guess people studying them like would have got a, quite a surprise when they discovered that. Oh, absolutely. They must have a ball <laughs> to discover something like that. I love wood warblers as well. They, they are one of those birds that I think they're a real sort of birder's favourite, aren't they? Because they're, yeah. they're rare they're stunning if you're looking at a wood warbler you're having a good day because you, you're Absolutely, probably yeah. in somewhere lovely you know beach and oak woods and you're probably going to chance upon red starts and pied fly catchers and other great birds and we are losing them from the new forest nearby where i live and um i think people are very worried about wood warblers as they are many birds yeah. don't want to get into too much uh, sad conservation stuff but you know of course the more you learn about a bird, the more you uh, want to treasure it as well, of course. Yeah, yeah, they are declining. They have dropped significantly for various reasons. But wonderful, wonderful little birds. Right. Let's move on to your fifth and final bird. Bird number five. This is the great black-backed gull. And um, the main reason I'll include it is that I have an amazing experience. It, was a, it wasn't an amazing experience in a sense. It was a... A shocking experience. One of the few times in my life when I've been in the field actually watching things and 
more or less burst into tears and was depressed for days afterwards. I was watching a great black back gull standing next to a kittiwake one day. And they were just, you know, roosting gull flocks. They just sit there and they preen. They, they don't do anything, really. And after a moment, the great black back gull, which was, by the way, a, a first winter, so it was only a, less than a year old at the time, and it grabbed the neck of the kittiwake and drowned it. Oh. And the drowning took a long, long time. So you could see the, the big struggling at the beginning and the kittiwake gradually weakening as it was dunked under the water. Like you see in these gangster movies, you're always seeing someone being yeah. dunked yeah. down. And this this um, great blackback girl basically did it long enough to kill the, the kittiwake which was deeply distressing anyway. And um, then it proceeded to eat it on the spot. So you didn't just have the death throes of this kittiwake. You also had the blood and guts and gore. And oh. I was obviously, I, I couldn't intervene. It's one of those occasions I really wanted to intervene, but I could not reach them because they were on an island and I wasn't going to swim across because you know, it was too deep. It was very cold. And so I just, I couldn't take my eyes off this. You know, it's like these, these terrible things that happen sometimes. And it was just, what was extraordinary for me was just the impact it had. I was just completely down for days. And that's really unusual. Yeah. In a way, it's a treasured experience because it was, it, it reminds you that wildlife, for all of us, wildlife actually does excite important emotions. And People sometimes are upset when a sparrowhawk comes and mm. takes their favorite yeah. goldfinch or something. Mm -hmm. And actually, to be honest, that's brilliant because it means they care about individual animals and they care about wildlife generally. And what are we human if we're not caring about things? So it's quite important that we do allow ourselves, if you like, to have emotional reactions. I mean, I, I cried when I saw, I saw a tiger for the first time a few years ago, and I actually cried. And I've cried at other occasions when I've seen something amazing. That's great, you know, I think that we should allow ourselves to do that. Yeah. Um, because it means so much to us after all. Yeah, I think you're right. And I often hear people talking about, you know, the, the sparrowhawks coming to their bird tables and things. And I always just think, oh, that's brilliant though. You, you feed yeah. all the birds here. Yes. But actually I've got a few tree sparrows that nest now and that they've established oh. over the last few years. And if I if I did see my local sprook take a tree sparrow, I think I would, it would definitely tug on yeah. the heartstrings, I think more than if it took a goldfinch, you know, because yes. they're 10 a penny, but it's what predators do. And you know, my, yeah. obviously the, the, the peregrine I was talking to, Kabir Cole, recently, and his favourite bird is the kingfisher. And and obviously, yeah. you know, peregrines have been photographed taking kingfishers recently. Yes, and, and all sorts of other things. I don't think they've ever been seen taking great blackback gulls, by the way. <laughs> um, a couple of things more about great blackbacks, just to another reason I like them. They're one of the few species of birds that's been known to eat a human corpse, oh. which is an interesting piece of yep. behavior. Um, and they're the world's largest gull. Mm -hmm. So if you go birding, particularly at the moment, it's uh, late April now, you could actually, in theory, in Britain, you could see the world's largest and the world's smallest gull if you saw a little gull yeah. as well. It's one of those birds that no one really cares about too much, great blackback, and yet it's, uh, it's really quite splendid.
I don't think we'd ever have a country with it on its flag, but I like them. I, I like gulls altogether. They are brutes of birds, and you have to admire that five-foot wingspan. I mean, the Victorians used to stuff and mount them, whereas they wouldn't do that for any other gull. The, the great backed gull was... Really? was kind of revered and trophy because they're kings of the, the seabird world. And, and I never knew that. Got to take your hats off to them. They don't all just scrounge for chips. No. And great blackbacks are sort of a bit too too refined for that, aren't they? Yeah. I leave that to the herring gulls and they sort of eat puffins instead. Yeah. And kiddiewakes. They're not going to dance for worms or chips. <laughs> no, they're not, are they? Grab a kiddiewake. <laughs> They're the peregrines of the gull world, aren't they, Kit? Yeah, That's I have to admire them. I mean, those and uh, skewers, absolute thugs of the bird world. You've got to mm. admire them. You might not like it, but... Absolutely. Cray brothers, aren't they, of the gull world? They do what they do, and they do it well. Right. You've chosen five great bird species there, Dominic, but now you must choose one of these five to enter the avian Armageddon arena to battle it out with my peregrine falcon in a futile attempt to decide which is the best bird in the world. Now, you've already alluded to the fact that you don't rate the peregrine that highly, so I'm curious as to which of your five species you're going to choose yeah, it's it's a simple one. This because if you if you put a wood warbler against the peregrine, it's a bit unfair. So it's going to be great blackbird gull, which no doubt eats dead peregrines. So yeah, I'm putting my gull against the peregrine. All right. Well, let's have it. So this series, I've been doing a variety of different devices to decide on the on the best bird battle. And today I've come up with a wheel of fortune type affair. So for one week only, I've crafted this spinning wheel, which is basically a twister wheel with some paper stuck over the top of it for those of you at home, with six categories on it. Each category is a top Trumpian-esque bird quality. And the first bird to win three spins of the wheel will be crowned the best bird in the world forever, enough said. Three of the categories will be won by the gull and three by the peregrine. So... I'm going to give it a spin and we'll see where we go. It's very high tech. So this one is defecation. So that is a poo emoji that I've drawn there, which obviously this is on a podcast. So this is completely pointless. But this is actually which bird defecates most frequently. And this was told to me by Dr. Alex Bond, who's the curator of birds at the Natural History Museum. And You've won this one, Dominic. The great black back oh, well, has 4.4 times an hour. Don't Brent geese defecate once every three minutes? Do they? I think so. Oh. And voles. You know voles, of course. They, they have to go to the loo at least every three minutes. Anyway, sorry. So it's 1-0 to the goal. We're going to oh, go that's great. first to three. I'm okay. Again. Oh, no. This one is weight. And... Ah, You've won that one as well. So yeah. the weight of the great black back gull is 2.2 kilograms and the peregrine is only 1.5. So I'm going to have to hope that I get some... 2 nil up at half time. Oh, this one. This is a moustache. This one is which one has the best moustache. That's the peregrine. So <laughs> oh, that's a fix. 2-1. Two, two, oh, nostrils. Mm. Which one has nostrils most like a jet engine, which is the peregrine? 2-2. Two, two. So finally, let's have the final spin. Do you know what? Which one has been seen on the most continents? Oh dear. Peregrine. Oh, I, I demand a recount. <laughs> yeah, actually the great, the great black bag girl is actually quite a restricted range. 
it's just the North Atlantic, so. Oh, no. Right. That's terrible. Okay, I suppose the best bird won. It's a very rare win for the Peregrine this week. The winner of Golden Grenades is my Peregrine. Get him. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Dominic, coming on today and entertaining my nonsense. Really enjoyed our chat today. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been my pleasure. So your new book, Save Our Species, Endangered Animals and How You Can Save Them, has just yep. simply been published by HarperCollins. Tell us about that very briefly before you go. Yeah, sure. It's basically, a bit like it says on the tin, it's about um, 30 animals and plants found in Britain. It tells the stories of them. They're all declining. So we say the story of what it does, so there's turtle doves and why they're declining and all this sort of thing. And there's a section in each one about what you can do to help each of those individual animals or plants. And the second half of the book is about what you can do generally to help wildlife in every way you can think of to help wildlife in Britain and around the world. And it's got fantastic illustrations in it. It really does. So please buy them just for that. Yeah, Sarah Edmonds has done some lovely illustrations. Yeah, she's a yeah. phenomenally talented artist. Wonderful stuff. Great stuff. And you've got a book on insects coming out as well. That's um, a complete departure for me. So it's um, a field guide to garden insects. It's trying to take really a person who doesn't know much or doesn't look much, sorry, at insects and trying to, first of all, identify things they might see in their garden. Then we, we try and give them a little bit of information to inspire them. So what we're doing, unusually for field guide, we're including some cool facts about each one. So, for example, if you have, oh, I don't know, St. Mark's fly or something, which is flying at the moment because it was St. Mark's Day a few days ago, the eye is divided into two. And the upper half looks for females and the lower half checks how high the fly is above the ground. So you have ID of that fly and then you have a cool fact about it. Yeah, it's got lots of great photos and it will basically be hopefully a really fun book going to be published by John Beaufoy. Lovely stuff. Well, thanks again, Dominic. Well, it's been really fun to talk to you, Kit. Well, a win for the peregrine. Who'd have thunk it? That's all we have time for this week, folks. Do join me again next week when my special guest will be the self-proclaimed bird nerd, Lucy Lapwing. Until then, bye for now. Bye.